Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models, episode 257. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I am back with the man who I believe technically you're my jiu-jitsu uncle, right? Mr. Rob Bernacki from Island Top Team. Is that true? Are you my uncle, Rob? I mean, I, I think I'm your jiu-jitsu daddy, but sure, let's let's go with uncle. Daddy in the, you know, the meme sense, but you gave my brother his black belt, right? So you're kind of technically, you know what? Fuck it. I don't understand family trees. Anyway, <laughs> welcome back to the podcast, Rob. How's it going? It's going good, man. How are you? I am doing pretty good here. I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. Um, now, I'm trying to figure out if we need to do an intro so that people understand who exactly you are. You've been on the podcast so many times, but Rob, it does occur to me that the last time you were on here... I believe we were selling um, male lifestyle influencerdom or something like that, <laughs> right? So it might be an idea to like, look, I, I don't get it, man. I put a disclaimer at the beginning of every one of these episodes after the fact saying, look, if you discover this three months from now, just understand this was an April Fool's Day joke and people still get fooled all the time. It is amazing. Well, you know what? I'm actually a little disappointed that I didn't get a, like a raft of emails trying to buy my like, you know alpha male bullshit course that we were slagging it on that thing. <laughs> well, hey, you know what? The reason I want to bring this up is because today's episode might sound related, but I can assure everyone listening, this is a real one. This is not an April Fool's Day joke. Last time we talked about being alpha. I think this time we're going to talk more about being beta, if I understand correctly. Um, you know, you, well, can't no, you have... don't understand at all. You don't understand my mentality, bro. <laughs> it's all about my mentality. Uh, well, look, before we do that, why don't you just give yourself the quick rundown and maybe actually talk about your recent tournament performances that kind of kicked off the series of conversations between you and I and what we wanted to talk about here today. Yeah. So, I mean, for those that don't know me, I'm a, a nerd that is known slightly on the internet for conceptual jujitsu instruction. Um, probably known a bit for leg locks and uh, for some reason not known for like gamification which is something i've been preaching for about 10 years and all of a sudden it's like you know it's like helio inventing leverage i'm like these guys have invented using games to teach people jujitsu i'm pretty sure that's been around for a while but anyway i am known for a few of those things not super known for competing because like i don't compete at an extremely high level or anything but you know i like to throw down here and there um in competition in the in the masters divisions and i've had a really good year so far with that well you know i've, I've probably had a good few years but uh especially this year i think has been my most successful uh year in competition and my team also has had pretty like outstanding results especially when you consider that we are a bunch of like lazy fucks from nanaimo who don't really work that hard like i've got zero full-time athletes training with me it's a bunch of hobbyists you know who train like three times a week kind of thing so especially within that context and i'm the same way you know i'm 47 i roll three times a week so I'm not out there training crazy hard. And within that context, I think we've had some pretty remarkable competition results. And so a lot of people in the jiu-jitsu world think that you've got to like pump your tires and kind of delude yourself about how great you are to go out and compete and be successful. And I guess we're here to talk about how I don't think that's necessarily the case. Rob, before we go any deeper, I just want to clarify. When you say, I like to throw down, what you actually mean is... <laughs> You like to sit on the ground and kind of scuttle towards your opponent on your butt. You know, I like to sit down. This is what I should have said. <laughs> yeah. Real fucking quick. Like, yeah, the, the quicker I can sit down, the more I like the rule set. 
Yeah, basically you're like a crab with hemorrhoids, right? The sooner you can scoot your ass along the floor, the better off it's going to be. But I, anyway, I wanted to talk to you about this because there's something that I think we've all observed in the male jujitsu community. We kind of lampooned this the last time you were on for April Fool's Day, but this idea of like having an alpha grind set or alpha mindset, right? There's a lot of like... Or Sigma or Omega. There's whatever. so many Greek letters that you could use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just this idea that just that, that's the trick. Use Greek letters and <laughs> fucking idiots will just assume that you're the, the shit. <laughs> well, like you said, though, the thing that I've always loved about your work is that it's very much friendly to people who don't do jujitsu full time and don't take it seriously. I mean, you know, I, I've been a hobbyist my whole uh, jujitsu career. And the challenge that I always have is People expect me to engage with the sport the way that a pro would, right? But that's not me. I'm simply not going to be able to spend five hours a day watching instructional and then another five hours a day training. That just isn't my life. If I can get to the gym a few times a week, it's a good week for me. And my goal is not necessarily to be the biggest, baddest champion ever. I don't even compete, right? My goal is just personal improvement on this martial arts journey. And I find that a lot of the other content that instructors and educators make kind of makes the assumption that you're a 20 year old full-time athlete who's running up for a world championship. And so the reason I like your stuff is I think it's very much more relatable to the 99% of people out there who are just regular people getting into the sport for normal human reasons. But the cool thing is that for those people who do cross the threshold, I mean, my brother being a good example, right? Your system works just as well at an elite black belt level. We've been talking about your stuff literally since episode one of BJJ Mental Models. And I can tell you that we get a ton of feedback saying, you know, Rob's stuff changed my game. And some of these people are very elite level athletes who use your system. So I think the accessibility of the BJJ concept system that you put together is kind of my favorite thing about it. But so far, whenever you've been on, we've only ever really talked about technical nuts and bolts and stuff. And I really like this idea of exploring the mindset side of being a, a casual grappler, so to speak, someone who isn't a full-time hardcore, you know, world-class athlete, but rather just more of an everyman. Well, yeah. And I mean, I certainly would qualify in the uh, like everyman category, but the stuff that I'm going to talk about or the stuff that we're going to talk about here, this isn't just for that because has been helpful to me in the, I don't know if I would say developing this mindset, but just getting to a comfort level where I feel like the mental game is it, you know, a decent strength of mine now. It has come from just um, like with a lot of my work is just studying who the, some of the best guys are and trying to emulate what I think they offer what I think has real value. And so like one of the guys that I use as an example is Mikey Musumeci. And I've seen him discuss this where he's just like, you know, he doesn't go out there and try to pump himself up that he's the best. He just goes out. He obviously is the best, but he doesn't approach it with that mentality. He just approaches it with like, literally, if your jujitsu is good enough, you're going to win. And that's like the essence of the mindset that I have tried to tap into has been like, whether you're a pro or you're a hobbyist, whether you're, you know, training six days a week, three times a day, you're on steroids, you're doing all that, or whether you're, you know, a master's athlete and you train a few times a week and you just try to do some strength and conditioning so you can bring your best game to the table, you can still channel this mindset of, like not worrying about the extraneous things, not trying to make it about being alpha or being the best or pumping yourself up and just going out with kind of a, you know, the universe is unfolding as it should be kind of mentality where it's like, if my jujitsu is good enough, I'm going to win. If my jujitsu is not good enough, I don't deserve to win and make the battles simply about like jujitsu versus jujitsu and really nothing else and focus on the training in the gym, whether it's you know, with your own training partners, whether you do a camp, whether you travel to train, whatever, you're going to have training partners, you're going to prepare yourself. And if you prepare yourself properly, everything flows from that. And you don't have to play these games of like, you know, going out and posting on social media that everyone's fucked like a week before the tournament kind of stuff. Because like, if we just look at it kind of empirically, you know, there are guys who do that and they win, but there are just as many, if not more guys who do that and they also lose. Like they go in with ironclad confidence that they're going to fuck everybody up and they lose in the first round or they lose in the second round or whatever. And then you've got people like me who go into tournaments and people like, you know, other people who go into tournaments being like, 
man, I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose this one. Like I'm pretty, like there've been a few tournaments that I've entered recently where I'm like, I don't think I'm going to win this. I'm going to do it anyway. Cause like I want to develop and I want to grow as a competitor and as an athlete, but I have no illusions that I'm going to win or even podium depending on the circumstances. And I go out there and I end up like doing very well or even winning the whole thing. So like, I can guarantee you that I'm so fucking great and everyone else is beneath me mentality doesn't like not, not just doesn't guarantee results. I'd say it's statistically like, you know, you could say it's a wash and you can very much like go into uh, tournaments thinking you're going to lose, believing you're going to lose. So in other words, like the self-belief stuff I think is so irrelevant that you can go in thinking you're going to lose and still win. So yeah, that's kind of where I stand on that. Before we go too far here, I would love to get your feelings on that, I guess you could call it classic alpha wannabe mindset approach that you see so often in jujitsu. Um, because you're right, like, man, if you're on social, you see this all the time, right? People puffing their chests up and talking like they're the best and they've already won before they even have that kind of excessive bravado and confidence seems to be kind of a mindset that a lot of people try to employ in jujitsu. And to your point, yes, it's especially amazing when people do that and then they just get smoked. <laughs> but beyond that, though, where do you think all of that comes from? And why do you advocate away from that? Uh, because it is very common, right? A lot of people do kind of embrace that. But why would you say it's not a good idea to have that approach and it's better to take kind of that more what happens happens approach that you're talking about here? Well, it really depends how deep in the weeds you want to get. Like where it comes from, I think that's fairly obvious. Like we certainly jujitsu is on a you know, like Venn diagram with like idiot bro culture that, you know, glorifies, you know, just like the worst elements of just like stupid, dumb guys. I don't think it's, we need to search very hard for uh, where that comes from, right? Like it comes from Joe Rogan. It comes from all of that kind of dumb shit. But as to why I don't think it's beneficial, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that when you create a persona and you you put all of this uh, emphasis on that persona, anything that, um, that contradicts the basis of the persona that you've created is going to be psychologically damaging to you. So I, I think it you're just a lot healthier not taking yourself that seriously, especially as an athlete, right? Like athletes lose. The best athletes on the planet at their sport lose. Even the, you know, seemingly undefeatable, you know, multi-year reign kind of champions across every sport eventually lose. And what that does to them is I'm not educated enough to like get into that. So I'll just avoid it. But what I'll say is that for the people that aren't that, the people that are just going to lose you know, anyway, that aren't going to have a, you know, a five-year title reign and then lose. The pressure that you're putting on yourself to try to live up to this, you know, ridiculous and impossible standard is not worth it. Any extraneous pressure is, you know, to a certain degree, I think, detrimental. Like there's enough pressure that comes with going out and competing in front of people. There's enough pressure that comes with, you know, maybe your elbow is going to get broken. Maybe you're going to get, someone's going to hit a flying whatever into your knee and you're going to blow out your ACL and you're going to be on the shelf room. Like there's so much pressure that just comes with sport that to, to add on top of that, I think is, you know, largely unnecessary. And even the people that do cope with it well, and because some people do like you can pile in an enormous amount of pressure on some individuals and they will still shine when the time comes to perform. Like that's a thing. And I'm not disputing that, but I think the cost on your psyche of that. You know, when you talk to people who've been through it, it's like, man, looking back on it, the relief that some champions have when they finally lose is so immense. And so to just, if you're not the person who's going to reap the rewards of being, a, you know, an elite level world champion at whatever, and which let's face it, like the rewards of that in jujitsu are still pretty fucking slim. Like me, schmuck from Nanaimo has nicer cars than some of the like world champions in jujitsu. So like, it's not like the rewards are so fucking significant that you'd want to put extra pressure on yourself. So if you're not even going to have those rewards, it is so not worth keeping this extra pressure of trying to live up to this utterly bullshit like alpha male stereotype. You're better off just making it about like just trying to be a better competitor and a better version of yourself. Yeah, I really like that idea of just keeping your identity smaller and focusing on just constant ongoing improvement, because whether you win or lose, you can always improve. And you bring up a great point, which is that I guess that kind of classic bravado and overconfidence is really about puffing yourself up, right? And making your personality and your identity bigger. You know, you're saying I'm a champion, I'm a killer, all of that stuff. And the problem is, 
if you run into reality at some point, you know, if you have attempted to convince yourself that you are one type of person and then reality smacks you in the face, that's, I mean, you can get some pretty heavy cognitive dissonance, like you said. I was just going to say that, yeah, cognitive dissonance is the big thing here. And if you talk about what is the potential detriment of that, well, the potential detriment is that most people respond to cognitive dissonance very poorly, right? Like most people respond to being slapped in the face by reality very poorly rather than making an adjustment. And as you said, making your identity smaller, making your identity about something other than that, they'll double down and make that identity even you know, like more comedically out of touch with reality. Like if I'm going to drop a name, like a guy like Dylan Danis, like, you know, where you're just like literally a joke to the entire community. You basically like flushed any external validity that you might have down the toilet by doubling down on this, like this idiotic premise that you're some world beater when that's clearly not the case. I think the potential for being, you know, even more unmoored from reality is very high if you try to invest too much in that sort of thing. I think also overconfidence comes from, I got to be careful how I say this because being really confident is not a bad thing at all. Uh, confidence is a very powerful force, but it's not something that you just want to let absolutely run away with your life, right? It's something where you do want to temper it with some degree of reasonable expectations and humility. If your attitude is just all about how big and great and awesome you are, then in addition to that cognitive dissonance problem, it also can impact your ability to learn because it's really hard to be humble and to be empathetic to and open to other people's viewpoints if you already think you're the best and the baddest. Yeah, absolutely. There are several detriments to it. I, I think probably as far as we're concerned, uh, talking people out of it is likely to fail, right? Because if you're the sort of person that believes this shit, you and I are not the people that you're listening to anyway. So I think there's probably a limit to how much we want to present the case against it because the people that are going to be for it, they're going to be for it. I think what we want to do is probably more address the people that might be on the fence about whether they want to pursue this as a, you know, a strategy in their, their jujitsu career or their jitsu life, uh, or people who are looking for an alternative as far as how to structure their mindset, their uh, identity within this milieu and maybe provide more of what we think is a, a more valid way of doing it rather than, you know, shitting on the, the obviously comedic <laughs> alpha bro mentality. Well, we have to do it for the content, but that part's behind us now. You know, we all agree, hopefully, that alpha mindset is out, beta mindset is in. So <laughs> with that said, Rob, let's talk about our situation, right? You're a regular person. You're in your 40s. You do jujitsu consistently, but, you know, you're not in there training with killers eight hours a day. Your goals involve getting better, being effective maybe winning some local tournaments, but also not dying in the process. You know, you're a regular person and you do jujitsu. So if you're that person, how does all of this shake out? Let me speak a little bit to like my experience. So like in the sense that I'm a regular person, like I'm not an elite athlete, I'm not a good athlete. And I'm, my body is not like, I'm not genetically blessed with a robust injury free kind of body. Like I get injured relatively easily. It takes a long time for me to recover from stuff. And it takes a very long time for me to get in like anything close to like athletic shape, right? Like, especially at my age, right? Like maybe in my thirties, I could do it a little bit quicker, but uh, nowadays it takes a long time regarding the, you know, training with elite guys. That's one thing that I will say I've got going for me. So the part of what makes the mindset stuff a little bit easier for me is, you know, whether it's at my gym where I've got really like remarkably high level training partners, even though they're not able to prove that in competition, you know, I do have guys like Rory at my club who like, I've seen him in the room with world level guys. I know how good Rory is. So when I could have the luxury of a training partner like that, I can measure my improvement based on how I'm rolling with somebody like that. I've got really, really talented people in Vancouver that I train with. I've got obviously your brother, Matt, that makes visits to the island and I train with him. I've got other people that I know on the mainland that are really skillful. And I've got Kayotera as my coach and like the, the resources of CTA. So whether it's Kayo coming and visiting me or me going down there and training with those guys, I've got great friends around the Pacific Northwest. I've got Joshua Bakayao, who's an awesome, like very high level black belt in Seattle who comes and trains with me at my club. I go and train with him at his club. So my state of mind is very, has benefited quite a bit from knowing that we don't, whoever I'm facing in competition, because I am 
you know, Joe Blow, 45-year-old, 47-year-old guy who rolls with master's athletes when I compete, no one I'm going to face in competition, usually, there's been a couple of recent exceptions, but usually no one I'm going to face in competition is anywhere near the level of the guys I train within the gym on a day-to-day basis. And that's something that I think anyone can access, right? Like if you're a you know 45-year-old purple belt, whoever you're going to be competing against, you know, in a master three or four IBJJF category is not going to be the same level of quality grappler as, you know, the adult division black belts that you might be training with uh, day in, day out. So I think that first part, that whole, like, you know, the quality of your training partners, I mean, you know, unfortunately, if you train at a smaller gym where you don't have access to higher level black belts, that's going to be a little bit of a limitation, but you can always go to open mats. You can always travel. Like that is something you can do. You can definitely create a mindset around whoever I'm facing in competition is definitely not as good as the people I have trained with. And I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people also sleep on the idea that, look, you can get amazing training out of regular training partners. You don't have to be in a room full of world champions to become a world champion. There are a lot of people who run out of really obscure gyms with people you wouldn't even know and they're able to go on and become world champions. So I think there is also something to be said about how it's not always just the uh, the skill level of your training partners, although that's part of it, but it's also how you engage with those training partners to get the most out of practice. Again, uh, your fuck you jiu-jitsu system, we've talked about that in the past, right? I think that's a really great way to leverage uh, and get great results out of training with anyone. I mean, these days, most of my training partners are white belts just due to the composition of our gym. I love the fuck your jujitsu stuff because I can get really good resistance and I can even be threatened by white belts if I'm willing to wade into those bad positions and let them do their thing. Well, yeah, that was going to be the next point that I was going to address as far as like how I've built my you know comfort in going out and competing has just been A, it's training partners. B, it's how I approach training, which is to say I roll three days a week. When I get ready for like major events, I roll four days a week, right? It's not a tremendous amount of training volume, but what I do do is a lot of fuck your jujitsu. I do a lot of constraints-based stuff, like to a certain degree, practically just speaking because I'm injured. But, you know, like for the most part, like pretty much this year, I've trained with the use of one arm or neither hand during training. So I've done, I've probably had maybe a month or two where I've actually been able to actively grip with both hands. And I've still gone out and had the best uh, year I've ever had in competition. And so much of the training is centered around, okay, why? Well, let's say I can't use this. Well, then I'll just use my legs more. I'll use my balance more. I'll post more. I'll do this more. And the end result is that when I go out and compete, I have like, you know, zero fear about getting my guard passed. I have zero fear that I'm going to get swept because I've just been in such like incredibly deep positions with people who have every advantage and should score on me. And if I can prevent them from scoring under those circumstances, I can certainly prevent people from scoring if I've actually got the luxury of using both my hands all of a sudden. So I think if you invest in doing more constraints-based stuff and really focus on skill acquisition and skill development rather than winning roles in the gym, and this is where I think people run into a lot of trouble is the people who want to compete, they feel like they need to make every role a deathmatch, and those kind of deathmatch roles, they really stunt your growth. They make you stall more. They make you apprehensive uh, when it comes to exploring any sort of movement. They make you, well, they make you roll like it's competition. And one of the mindset things that I've kind of unlocked is like where most people would view it in the, like the reverse order or like though I should say the typical order, I view it in the reverse order. So most people are like, I want to make my roles in the gym as close as possible to competition. And the way I go about it is I want to make my roles in competition as close as possible to my roles in the gym. So I go out very much with the mentality that like, let's go out and kind of see what happens. I want to have some fun with it. Like I've got a game plan. I've got stuff that I'm trying to do, but I'm not so married to it that if it doesn't happen, it's going to break my confidence. And I know that what kind of whatever ends up happening in a match, I'm highly confident that I will have been there before more times than my opponent has. Maybe not in a match because I've got a huge deficit in match experience to almost all my competitors, but certainly in terms of what I've allowed to happen in the gym and how deeply I've explored different positions and different scenarios, I'm pretty confident that I've got more experience in those exchanges than most 
guys that I'm going to face. Yeah, that's a, a really great aspect of the mindset here. I think for many people, they feel like confidence is something either that you've got or you don't, or it's something that you have to talk yourself up into. But one of the things that is most confidence inducing is just data, having data that demonstrates that you have a reason to be confident, or at least you have no reason to be lacking confidence. So if, for example, you are training in a room with people who are really challenging you, you can feel yourself getting better and you've done the best preparation that you possibly can. Then at that point, as a Nick Perler would say, whatever happens, happens. You've done your best and you have reason to be confident whether you win or lose. And it's not so much about whether you win or lose, but more about the opportunity to go out there, just the happiness, the giddiness of being out there and feeling like you belong and then doing your best and taking it back to the lab, whether you win or lose to improve more for next time. I've always loved that mindset because it's applicable to everyone, not just the people who want to do this professionally, but even regular people in the gym, right? I mean, if you're a real hobbyist, right? Someone who can only train maybe once or twice a week, you've got no serious competitive aspirations. It's easy for people like that to beat themselves up in the gym because they're often surrounded by people, or at least they've got a few people there who train a lot more than they do and do this professionally. And I find that a, a mistake a lot of the time that hobbyists make is they compare themselves to those people, whereas really they should be looking internally and just saying, hey, look, you know, for the limited time that I'm putting in here and for the goals that I've got, I'm doing my best. I'm doing pretty good for someone with those constraints on me, and I should just enjoy the process. Yeah, absolutely. That can apply to just about anything. It doesn't even have to be like a, a competition, uh, you know, a sport mindset. That, that can go for like, you know, how you perform in your job, how all that kind of stuff. I think that stuff's really valuable. One of the things that I have really started to adopt for in both my preparation and for how I prepare my athletes or students or hobbies, like whatever you want to call them, competitors, is... Um, and this is going to be like very specific to mindset. So, you know, we talked about the quality of your training partners. We talked about the quality of your training itself. Those are two very important factors as to how you develop what we could maybe refer to as like genuine or authentic confidence rather than that kind of fake, like I, I tell myself I'm the best, therefore I'm the best, you know, the sort of fake it till you make it bullshit. But those are tied to like authentic confidence. One thing that this isn't necessarily tied to like confidence and you know, being, I'll say, you know, easy on yourself, as you said, like if you're a hobbyist, obviously you're not going to do the same amount of volume that somebody else is. So like, give yourself the credit that you are doing your best. But as far as the actual like frame of mind that you want to be in, both in the, like the competition, on the competition mats, on the day within the match, but also in the preparation, in the, the practice room, a mantra that I kind of have been throwing out to people is, you know, yes, make good decisions, but more importantly, don't make bad decisions. And the focus on that, which we've kind of like really emphasized over the course of the last year or so, where we've had some really outstanding like team results, the focus on that has yielded, I think, really remarkable results because obviously there's a process of what we mean by like, or understanding what we mean by make good decisions versus don't make bad decisions. But just understanding that the cost of a bad decision is so high that you can make 10 good decisions in a row. And if you make one bad one, it can undo those 10. The nature of jujitsu competition and the nature of combat sports competition in particular, where like any combat sport that has a an instant win condition, right? So like most sports have a time frame that it's, it's going to be played, uh, you know, you play a game of hockey, you play a game of football, you know, whatever. There's a certain amount of time that's going to happen, like whether you're losing one nothing or 20 to nothing, the, the game continues. Whereas in our sport, we've got an instant win condition, which is a submission, just like in boxing, kickboxing, you've got the instant win condition, which is a knockout. So in any sport where that exists, you know, the consequences of one bad decision in a hockey game is maybe you get scored on, but so fucking what, you can get that back. The consequences of one bad decision in jiu-jitsu are the match ends and you die. So we really have to get people kind of focused on that mentality of, I don't want to make the catastrophic error and I want to just focus on making a, a series of good decisions. And what I find happens with people who, especially in the hobbyist category, especially in the infrequent competitor category is once a match starts and the nerves start to kind of get to you a little bit and you start to get maybe a little bit tired, 
is you start looking for ways out. And ways out doesn't mean that like you'll throw the match and you'll like let someone submit you. But what it means is you'll go for something that's not there because you want to try to get out of there quickly. You're like, oh, you know, maybe I can't pass this guy's guard. So let me drop for a shitty leg lock that I don't even really know how to do. And then uh, I get you know a leg entanglement and I get sub quickly because the other guy's better at leg locks than I am or any like wacky submission attempt that people throw at folks that puts them in a bad way that ends with them getting scored on and then they've got to be like a little bit more desperate they've got an incentive now to do dumb shit because they've got to try to get a score back that they wouldn't have otherwise given up there are a lot of little opportunities that people have during a match that will lead to them making that one bad decision that is just you know it it creates a a catastrophic series of events that lead to the match ending when it otherwise wouldn't have or lead to them getting scored on or they otherwise wouldn't have and constantly reminding people of that when we train in the gym when we're out there in competition is just your job is to go out there and make a series of good decisions and as long as you're doing that whatever you bring to the table with your jiu-jitsu we're going to find that out you make one bad decision because you're trying to cheat the process and like so we do a lot of work on that is like getting people to identify what are the bad decisions they're making during training that led to really negative outcomes and just making sure that those are things that don't cross their mind when they're out there competing does that make sense it 100 makes sense um interestingly this is where lessons can be pulled from the world of business and finance you'll hear very similar advice if you're talking about business strategy or investment or anything like that, where people will talk about the importance of avoiding mistakes and avoiding dumb, avoidable mistakes, right? A lot of people focus on doing everything the best and doing everything perfectly. But in the vast majority of situations, the thing that's really most important is avoid making stupid mistakes, especially, like you said, unrecoverable or catastrophic mistakes. And Jiu-Jitsu is a great example of where a lot of early match mistakes are pretty much unrecoverable, right? And I'm not even talking necessarily about submissions. Obviously, that's a fight ender right there. But man, if we start the fight and you immediately take me down and pass my guard, I mean, at this point, assuming we're talking about IBJJF, the rule set itself makes it harder for me to come back because first I've got to get back into a scoring position before I can even start racking up points to try to close that deficit. So yeah, for a lot of people, just having that mindset of avoiding catastrophic error, especially early on in a match. It's very, very important. And I know this is something you've talked about before here too. Um, you and I quite a while ago had a really good talk about probabilities and, and probabilistic thinking in jujitsu and just how one of the tricky things about jujitsu is there's so much variability early in a match. And I recall you mentioning that your favorite way to think about things early on in a match is just to play super conservative until you get the grips you want, you get the look you want, and then you can move forward. But avoiding that frustration or that greediness of trying to rush into something to, to just make it happen, right? Learning to play carefully and conservatively to avoid those dumb mistakes will save you a lot of pain down the road. Yeah, yeah, that was the chaos theory episode that we did. Yeah, and so which kind of leads into leads very well into the sort of the fourth thing that I have found to be extremely beneficial in terms of like you know again mindset results etc for myself and my guys, which is the ability to identify a you know a, a probabilistic analysis of what is most likely to lead to success in any given tournament like i got a lot of questions after my team did the um the adcc open in vancouver and for those of you that don't know like sorry i have to brag about it a little bit because it's just fucking cool so like we showed up at this tournament um with five athletes one of whom fucked up and signed up under his affiliate club name instead of uh, our club name so really we showed up with four athletes <laughs> that represented Island Top Team for the purpose of the team standings. And so with four athletes, we ended up winning the um, the overall, like, team, like number one spot. The, the, we won the team standings at that tournament with the, you know, like the second place team having something like 20, or I think over 20 athletes. And then like the third or fourth place teams had like a dozen athletes. So we had like literally a fraction of the amount of athletes and still managed to win. And if, like, 
any one of our students, we, we got four gold medals, I think. Yeah, so we got uh, three or four. I can't remember for sure. Anyway, we had the most gold medals. And if any one of those gold medals hadn't occurred, like we, if any one of those had been a silver medal, we would have dropped from first place to like fifth place because all of the teams that were just below us in the team standings would have vaulted about like, we all, we faced all of the other top couple of teams in all of these, like in all of the finals pretty much, or at least in the brackets. So it was like, it was one of those like, tightrope kind of deals and frankly like i didn't know about it until the day after like i i went we went home just thinking like there's so few of us there's no fucking way right like there's no way that we're even in the team standings and i found out the next day a couple people were like we were watching it we were rooting for you we just didn't want to say anything and jinx it and then i you know i flipped open the damnable social media and i saw a post by one of the other club head instructors like oh you know we finished third with a small team and i was like hang on a second think we had like a similar amount of medals to those guys or i think they they finished fourth and i was like maybe we finished third and then he did that so i asked him where the standings were and he just sent me a, a message like congratulations on first place that's how i found out that we actually finished first i didn't even know when we were at the tournament so like after the results came out we had quite a few questions about like you know how did you prepare we like was did you do a lot of shark tanks did you do this did you do that and i actually like honestly replied our, our training camp wasn't overly like intense it wasn't that difficult in terms of like a bunch of hard rounds what we had was you know a handful of athletes and we had a game plan for each athlete and just but also just a game plan as a team that we were going to try to maximize the the potential scoring positions under the rule set so like you mentioned IBJJF rules. Like we're, we just, uh, you know, what is it today? The 26th. So we're going to start our Nogi Worlds camp in about like six or seven days, which will be, it'll be November to December. And we're going to really try to maximize the IBJJF rule set in that training camp. So in the, the ADCC Canada camp, we tried to maximize how are we going to score in the ADCC rule set or how are we going to win? So obviously like under some circumstances, we're not necessarily looking to score, we're looking to submit. So we tried to really maximize everyone's familiarity with leg entanglements. So we did a lot of fuck your jujitsu leg spaghetti so that anybody from, you know, and, and most of our points, by the way, came from advanced division athletes. It's not like we went in there and you know, like had a bunch of white belts win gold medals. You know, it was myself, it was Guillaume winning his division. Like we scored a lot in uh, under that context. Sorry, just an aside. But anyway, we wanted everybody going in to be like, if there's a leg entanglement exchange, we got this. And if there is a turtle exchange, we got this. In other words, I've seen and experienced way too many instances of getting on top of turtle under ADCC rules and not being able to score for the back points, people getting to a guard pass scenario and then their opponent turtling and not being able to solidify the pass points. And then also we wanted to exploit like, oh, what if we end up in a situation where we could get scored on? Uh, how do we use the ADCC rules to use turtle to deny that? So we basically focused a tremendous amount of the camp on just those two things, like literally just scoring under the context of turtle being such a, a fucking safe space in ADCC rules and how to get around that and the prevalence of being able to shoot leg entanglements of people and also the fact that we could go in and like just sit the fuck down right like in most rule sets you have to make contact so we spend a bit of time with people trying to like do a guard pull so you have to you do have to practice that as lame as guard pulls are in the estimation of the jiu-jitsu community for some reason, because they're trying to be fucking wrestling hipsters all of a sudden, which is a weird thing. But like guard pulling's awesome. You got to figure out how to do it. So you got to spend time on that. So we were able to completely avoid like preparing for guard pulls. We could just prepare for sitting the fuck down right away. And then obviously we did have to prepare for, hey, we have to wrestle in the finals. So that was something that was a lot more apt for myself and Guillaume because we'd be going up against guys who knew how to wrestle uh, and would have a strategy around that. Whereas for everybody else, we're like, hey guys, here's how you get taken down. And so all we had to work on was like tying up with somebody and letting the other person take you down into guard, which is really fucking easy to do. So we maximized the strategy and the time training based on that. And if you can really do a good you know, probabilistic 80-20, whatever analysis you can do and build your training around that. Again, like the results are going to be that you'll have legitimate confidence that comes from, I am really fucking prepared. 
right? Like the, everything in my matches in that tournament went, for lack of a better term, according to the game plan, just because like I kind of had a really good idea of how I was who I was going to face. So that was a luxury that was unique to this tournament. Like as soon as I saw the bracket, I was, and this isn't to diminish anybody, like, you know, obviously there are other athletes in the bracket that I could have faced, but as soon as I saw the bracket, I was like, well, pretty sure I'm facing Dave Porter in the finals. Let's base my entire preparation on that. And so because I was really confident in that based on just the experience of competing at the local level versus competing at the, you know, Pacific Northwest level versus competing at the, you know, in California at the world level, I just had an idea that, you know, this is who's in it. This is who I could face. Here's who I'm like most likely to beat. And so that's what I'd say about this tournament that I was like, I was pretty sure I was going there to collect a silver medal because my opponent was just really fucking good. Uh, so yeah, like the, the ability to magnify the value of training by getting into like a really well-designed, mathematically designed training camp, I think is really huge. You know, I love that you're bringing this up because man, you can get pretty far in life by just understanding the rules and the game better than everyone else. Knowing how to play the game and to play the rule set is a skill in and of itself. It is its own uh, area of expertise. So I think that a lot of athletes kind of ignore this to their detriment. They're so focused on just training and getting better that they don't really sit down and think critically about how can I bend the rules of this event to play a game that's going to result in the best possible chances of my success. I mean, you see this quite often where very good athletes, they lose a match or get disqualified because they didn't even really fully understand the the rules that they were competing under. And I mean, you can beat people who you probably have no business beating just by having a much better understanding of the rules than they do and consciously structuring a strategy around that. Yeah, absolutely. Frankly, that's the job of the coach. So this is where, again, like if we're going to talk about mindset helping, like my mindset is I'm the coach. I get to design the training camp. So that's a pretty like huge fucking bonus. But obviously that's a, a conversation that everyone can have with their coach. And if that's not thing that your specific coach is interested in, there are other resources that you can go to and like, you know, you can pick training partners at your club and there are things that you can definitely focus on where you can maximize that sort of thing. You know, certainly uh, you know, if, if somebody is ever lacking that as a resource, you know, I've put my name out there as to the community. You know, if you want to reach out to me, shoot me a message, send me an email. I will do my best to formulate something like that for you uh, based on the rule set, something I've done for people in the past. But as long as you have that, you know, you have the resource of a coach who's going to create that for you, it just increases your realistic confidence, your realistic mindset about what the results are going into it because you'll be in situations where you're like, you know, like again, in my match, all the things I thought were going to happen happened and they just, they didn't bother me. They didn't phase me. And then and this is knowing full well that if I made a mistake, which just goes back to that, yeah, make good decisions, but definitely don't make bad decisions. I knew if I made a mistake, my opponent had the skill and the experience and the ability to fucking highlight real me, right? Like this was a guy who has as recently as last year, beat top 10 adult division black belt athletes in spectacular fashion, right? So like when you go up against someone like that, like you have to have the realistic mentality that if you fuck up, you're going to die. I'm sure that can overwhelm you, but because of the preparation, because I knew so well what I was in for, when the moments occurred in the match where there was an opportunity for him to highlight real me, to posterize me, I had prepared so well for that that you know, not only was I not like phased about it, because I posted a, a clip on my Instagram of me like caught in a darce, you know, which is Dave's specialty. It's what he's most known for in the overtime in the finals. And I was, I'm like kind of smiling at the cameraman because I'm like, I know I'm going to be okay, right? Like I've been here before and I can feel the position and I can feel that it's not a position that I'm in danger in right now because of the preparation that I've done. And the same thing happened with the actual like, scoring sequence that happened in the finals in the overtime which is to say like i am a degenerate butt scooter guard puller and i still hit a takedown in the overtime in the finals because i've done enough wrestling in class i've done enough wrestling in competition matches and i practiced the specific scenario enough times that i've done enough 
hand fighting to be able to generate exactly the result that I wanted. And I may not be the best takedown guy out there. I'm far from it, but I can take people down if I need to. And as long as I understand that I need to create the exact right context for me to do it, I'm not going to have like a crazy like chain wrestling exchange and beat somebody with that. But I can create the favorable circumstances for it if I game plan it. If I set out to do it, I know I can do it. And so again, even though knowing that at any step of the way, there were a bunch of things that could go wrong and that the odds were that I was probably going to lose because of how I was able to prepare, I still had a tremendous amount of confidence in the moment versus confidence before the match. Confidence before the match was not high. <laughs> confidence before the match was like, oh shit, I'm a sacrificial lamb here. But in the actual match, my confidence ended up being fairly high. That's interesting, talking about your confidence in the moment versus your confidence beforehand. And um, this is something that I hear a lot of motivation and confidence coaches talk about, just the idea that you can really beat yourself up and ultimately defeat yourself before the match even starts just by obsessive thoughts. And I want to unpack here how you deal with that. I mean, a lot of people will try to just avoid thinking about the future to avoid that stressor. But I'm wondering if you've got a, a game plan for, you know, when you're a week out, when you're a few days out, when that stressful moment is coming up and you do have those doubts, what do you do to try to kind of resolve or, or keep those at bay prior to actually getting onto the mat in the tournament? I mean, I don't honestly worry about keeping them at bay. I think that that's the secret, right? There's a phrase, some, some philosopher or some like hack influencer probably, you know, but it basically it's, um, what you resist, you become. And so if you're just sitting there trying to be like, I'm not going to have negative thoughts. I'm not going to do something like that. You're just going to get overwhelmed by it. So I find that the most productive thing is just to yield to it. And I don't think it's that important to believe that you're going to win. I don't think it's that important to believe that you're definitely better. I don't think it's that important to believe that you're, you know, a world beater, that you're this, that you're that. I think it's important to know that you've prepared and given yourself the best opportunity. And that that is separate from belief, right? Like I, I think that's a really important distinction to make because people believe all kinds of nonsense in this world and it makes the world a worse place for it. But you can know that you've done what you can do to prepare. And I knew that I'd done what I could do to prepare, right? Like I, I think I was very fortunate in being able to prepare for a specific opponent and do that. I think I was unfortunate in that I broke my finger like the, uh, a few weeks before and I had inability to do as much grip fighting. And even when I was able to grip fight, I had a, a strength deficit in the limb and all that. So like uh, there were things that working against me. I w wasn't able to have somebody cornering me uh, that I was hoping I'd be able to have cornering me. Those are all things that like, so I had things happen like literally in the day before the match or the, the tournament, sorry, that were like, I just found this out and fuck, this is going to make my life harder. And those could be, you know, like when you get bad news the day before a tournament, that could be catastrophic to your mindset. If the only way you can go into a match and win is that you believe you can win. If it's debilitating to you that you like believe you might lose or you believe that you're not going to win or that you believe that you are going to lose. If that belief is debilitating to your performance, then I would argue that, that your mindset is actually pretty weak. So like if you, the only way that you can win is if you definitely believe you're going to win, I would argue that you're not that mentally strong. Being able to win under like, I, I know your brother Matt has talked about this a lot, being able to win when you're not at your best is a really huge thing. And I think that comes entirely separate of the belief aspect. I think being able to prepare in a way where you know that you've done everything you can and you're going to go out there and you're going to do your best and you're going to focus on entirely what you can control, which is make good decisions, don't make bad decisions. And so there were moments throughout the match where I don't want to make it like mystical or spooky because I certainly don't believe in any of that, but it's just a matter of feel, right? Like it's the embodied cognition kind of thing where like, if you've done something enough times, you will feel when the time is right for you to do a movement and you will feel when you're getting anxious and you're like overdoing it and you're pushing too much and you're reaching too hard and you're trying to make something happen. And if you just don't do that, if you go in and you just make the good decisions, you'll be fine. Whether you believe you're going to win or not, whether you believe that there are so many ways that you could lose. And I was like, literally I had, I looked at the 
sort of potential things. And I was like, okay, I don't think this guy can score on me, but what he can do is like submit me in spectacular fashion. And then I was like, I don't really think I'm going to submit this guy because the things that I'm good at, he's really good at. And the things that I could possibly submit him with, I don't think we're going to end up there, but I do think I can score on him. So I did have, again, like the realistic pathway to victory but also the the knowledge that the odds were really against me. So just in the match, I was really focused on like being in the pathways where I could win. Whereas before the match, I was like, whatever, I'm probably going to get Darst or I'm probably going to get, you know, flying scissor heel or whatever. Like that's, that may happen. And it just, that was not a relevant thing to me. The fact that I could possibly lose because I wasn't showing up there to win the gold medal. I was showing up there to collect the silver medal, right? Like I had gotten silver at the previous ADCC in California, and I was like, whatever, if I get a silver at this one, that's pretty fucking great. Like, I'm competing in an age group that is way below mine, where the athletes are way the hell more experienced and just better athletes than I am. And so, like, why should I even think about winning? So that, that just didn't enter my mind. Yeah, I really like this answer. This is something I've asked many people before, and I've never really got an answer that I was satisfied with. I really like what you just said here. I've often asked people, okay, look, you can puff up your chest as much as you want and do all of these confidence building exercises. But what if deep down, you know that you're probably going to lose? And a lot of people will kind of beat around the bush and they don't want to answer that question. But I like what you've said in this conversation about this idea of genuine confidence, you know, confidence that you have done the best that you can do regardless of whether you win or lose. And I would agree with you that if your confidence is conditional upon victory, it's not genuine confidence, right? You're just kind of deceiving yourself. You're putting up smoke and mirrors and the fall is going to be even worse when you do eventually lose, because like you said, it happens to everyone. So I really love this framework of coming in and just analyzing the situation, using data, doing the best that you possibly can to put together a, a good, reasonable game plan, avoiding mistakes and being happy with the fact that you've done your best and not letting the need for victory or the fear of defeat define you. I think that's just a much healthier way of going through this, especially because, like we talked about, we know that the vast majority of people in this sport are not athletes, right? They're just people who do this for self-defense or fun or whatever reason. Maybe they compete once in a while. Maybe they never compete at all. And so it's really important that when people like that build confidence it's not confidence that's easily shattered, right? I talk to so many people who are, you know, maybe they got to jujitsu late in life. They don't train as often as a full-timer would because of their lifestyle and their other obligations. They got family or job or whatever. And people beat themselves up so hard over this because they're not winning all the time to the point where it, it frankly seems to be killing their enjoyment of the sport. And that's just so tragic because one of the best things about jujitsu is how fun it can be. And one of the easiest ways to kill that fun is to get in your own head and be beating yourself up about how much you suck, right? So really great framework. Oh, absolutely. And the thing that I would say people can benefit tremendously from, like, that's kind of adjacent to this. So we would talk about, like, what my mentality was going into it, because obviously the mentality of, I think I'm going to lose could actually be catastrophic. You could absolutely psych yourself out of a match that you would have otherwise won if you go into it believing you're going to lose. So the thing that I think allows you to avoid that, and this isn't just for match preparation, this isn't just for confidence uh, to do with competition. I think this is just a very good overall like framework for how to think about yourself and how to, I guess, design your identity around maximizing the potential for success, which is that you want to tie your self-confidence and your identity to your willingness to follow through and do your best. So like I've had people ask me so many times, like how come you, you, you always do your conditioning, you always show up, like you, you're never late for class, you never don't do this, you never don't do that. It's like I've tied my identity to a certain degree around being the guy that does the things that he says he's going to do. And so I tie my identity as a competitor around whatever else is going to happen, I'm going to do my best. If I absolutely think I'm going to lose, I'll go down with the ship. I will, you know, I, I certainly had enough adult, or sorry, adult, um, absolute division matches where I'm like, for fuck's sake, that guy's 250 pounds. Like, I'm not going to beat that guy, but I'm going to do my best. The only sort of like allowance I'll give myself is I don't want to get injured. So I'm not going to get into like a war with a guy who outweighs me by 75 pounds 
and try to prove how tough I am by not tapping the shit. Like I'm not going to do that. So please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But like, as far as going into a match being like, I don't know if I can beat this guy. I'm still going to try as like, I'll, I'll try my damnedest to do it. And I'm going to try every second of the match to deliver the best possible performance I can. And as long as that's the thing that I've tied my identity to, you can't really go wrong, right? As long as you're the person who is going to follow through, you're going to do the things that you said. You don't have to worry about whether you win or lose because like you know, we said at the beginning, everybody loses, right? Like there's no champion so great that they don't go down defeated and sometimes defeated in a humiliating, like devastating fashion. And if that's your identity, that you're just the unconquerable champion, your whole identity is totally fucking shot. Whereas if your identity is, I prepared my best and whatever happens, I'm going to follow through on that. You can be fine. Everybody gets, you know, some like fucking catastrophic, embarrassing thing happened to them in their life. If your identity is that I'm the person who's never that, you know, then you just become a like deranged, raging narcissist who has nothing to offer the world. Great chat, Rob. Just help me make some content here. I just want to do a quick summary. You mentioned that there were four principles that we talked about here today. Do we want to quickly rattle those off? Yeah. The first one was just the, the idea of the training partners and having the confidence that your training partners, well, I mean, I think that they're all related to like building genuine confidence. So the first one is the quality of your training partners. Second one is the quality of your preparation as far as like how you kind of design the camp and all that. Uh, and then the last two were related to your mindset in sort of like, you know, knowing that you have prepared as much as you can and yielding to the potential that you could lose. And the final one being uh, developing a mindset based around tying your identity to your willingness to persevere and follow through and then just try to create the best result possible, uh, regardless of the outcome. Amazing, man. Well, thanks so much. I always love these kinds of conversations because they're just so generally applicable. Quick question. Is this something on BJJ concepts that you talk about? Do you get into the kind of mindset and tournament prep side of things on there? I do in the, in the breakdowns that I do for my matches. So like in our, we've got our, our student member uh, subscription, which is our basic one. And then our instructor subscription, which includes the pedagogy, the 301 and all that kind of stuff. So in that section, we do breakdowns. Like anytime I compete, I will film a breakdown of all the matches, provided that there is footage available. Sometimes that's not always the case, but for the most part, we've got footage. So, you know, like I might have a three minute match and then there'll be like an eight or 10 minute breakdown. The reason for the length of those breakdowns is because I will talk at length about my mindset going in and why I think I was able to succeed. So yes, although now that we've talked about this in this fashion, if I do get requests more for just like specific modules about that. That's certainly something we'd be willing to add. But yeah, on BJJconcepts.net or .com, both URLs will take you to our site. If you want to subscribe to the pedagogy membership and then go into tournament prep section and go into the match breakdowns, I talk about this extensively. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll put a link in the show notes just so that people can check it out. If people haven't checked out BJJ Concepts, I do definitely recommend it. If you're like me and you're always looking for ways to kind of simplify your thinking about jujitsu rather than make it more complicated, I think that's really where BJJ Concepts shines. I mean, I, I've talked to you about this, Rob. A breakthrough for me in my jujitsu journey was when I stopped trying to think about complicated technique sequences and just trying to think of very simple, simple ideas about how to manage things like grips and, and positioning, just things that were always universal. And that's kind of when I got introduced to your stuff because my brother Matt mentioned, you know, hey, Rob's got a whole framework about this. So I definitely recommend for people who are struggling with the envisioned complexity of jujitsu and they're looking for ways to make it simpler. One of the things that I love about your site is it does that, right? There's so many other instructionals and services out there that teach jujitsu but effectively do so by making it more complicated. Uh, and I think it's an art form to make things simpler. And I think that benefits most people more than the other options. So I do recommend people check that out if they aren't already subscribers. Um, anything else, Rob, that you want to plug? I know you're constantly making instructionals uh, on grapple arts with Stefan Kesting. Uh, I know you got a lot of stuff on the go. Anything else that we want to tie up here? We actually did film a um, an instructional recently. It's going to be coming out uh, later this year, probably around Black Friday or maybe uh, in time for Christmas. Um, that's on our fuck you jujitsu, you know, proprietary kind of constraints based learning methodology. So it's fuck you jujitsu gamification, like uh, specific situational sparring, that kind of stuff. 
and what our approach to that happens to be. So obviously we've got some of that material already on the site, but there's an entire section in this instructional that is not material that we've covered to this point on the site that I think people will find uh, pretty valuable. The, the, like the last couple of seminars that I've done in particular, the last one I did when I was down in, um, in Castle Rock, Colorado, I actually taught for the first time ever, I taught the fuck your jujitsu modality, like how to do fuck your jujitsu rounds. And the feedback I got was so phenomenal. I really think that's something that, you know, as much as I'm known for the concept stuff and, and some other stuff, I really think I want to try to expose people more to the benefits of that particular style of training and that particular style of learning because I know it's been really instrumental probably you know like equally so to a conceptual understanding the fuck your jiu-jitsu uh, round mentality has allowed for development for myself for Rory for anybody who does it a lot and like getting people to really embrace it is if I'm honest a little bit tricky because you do have to teach people how to learn this way and how to engage in the rounds this way but when they do the benefits are tremendous. Uh, and so, yeah, like I, we're, we're putting this instructional out. Hopefully people really dig it. Like, so far, the feedback in seminars has been fantastic. So I, I think it's going to be a really valuable resource for everybody out there. I just want to say, I love how you always refer to fuck your jujitsu as your proprietary system, because that kind of implies that at some point you went to a trademark office and had to convince them to <laughs> trademark to, the term to fuck your jujitsu. TM, fuck your jujitsu. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I do recommend it. And man, I would love to, like we were talking about earlier, I'd love to have you back on to uh, expand on your thoughts on gamification when that instructional comes out. Um, the thing I like about your system is that it's something that any jujitsu practitioner can just do regardless of how their classes are structured, right? The challenge that often comes up that I hear all the time is people say, I am aware that there are all of these better ways to train but my coach is this old school guy who just won't go for it. He's doing the same stuff that his coach taught him and I have no say in the matter and there's no other gyms in the area I can go to. So what do I do? And I sympathize with that. Uh, but the thing I like about fuck your jujitsu is literally you can just start doing it. You don't need yeah. to convince your coach to throw out their whole game plan. You don't need to even tell your partner you're doing it. You just do it. It's so low touch to start thinking about jujitsu that way. And it really does help. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the biggest benefits that I think I can offer people both in the like online sphere, but also through our visiting student program. So we haven't mentioned that yet. If you haven't heard about it, Anybody from anywhere around the world, if you want to come to Island Top Team and train with us for one week, you can do it for free. You can stay at the Island Top Team Inn, which is my big house, which has a bunch of guest bedrooms for people to stay. You can do that for free for one week, both accommodations and training. Please contact us first. Don't just show up. You can't knock on my door out of the blue. But as long as you schedule a week to come and visit, all you got to do is get here. And one of the biggest benefits from that is doing fuck your jujitsu in a room full of people that have been doing it for years and really learning how to do it so that you can take it back to your academy and help your training partners out, help yourself out, be able to engage in those kinds of rounds for the like high rate of development that they offer in, uh, in the best way possible. Amazing, man. Well, and for those who want a, just a sneak peek of this new instructional and a quick update on it, maybe go back and listen to episode 185. That's when you were on here and you kind of unpacked the system. And I thought that was a really good uh, comprehensive explanation of it. So more on that coming soon. Um, if anyone wants our stuff, I'll also add that to the show notes alongside your links, Rob. I think everyone knows, but everything we make is on bjjmentalmodels.com. Every episode of the podcast is intended to be educational, timeless, and free. It's all up there, so you can get that all right now. You can also sign up to our newsletter where we expand on, on the show, send out show notes and thought pieces and a lot of cool other discounts and offers. And of course, that's where you can get BJJ Mental Models Premium. Uh, that's the thing that floats the show. It's the reason why I don't make people listen to Dollar Shave Club ads every time here. It's our premium subscribers. That... <laughs> Dollar Shave, that's good. <laughs> are, are they still a thing? I think Manscaped is the new thing that's everywhere, right? I don't know. I've just, I've heard that so many times before that it elicited a chuckle. Oh my God. The well of podcast advertisers is uh, out there is not very deep, unfortunately. But anyway, if you're on premium, you get a massive course library, very unlike anything you'll get anywhere else. The, the main thing that makes us unique is fully audio. We fully focus on uh, just thinking high level about strategy, tactics, mental models, of course. 
Uh, beyond that, we've got a series of ongoing podcasts launched now. So that's probably the main reason to get on premium is you don't need to listen to me. So we've got um, ongoing podcasts with Emily Kwok, Joe Hannon, Drew Foster, really awesome material there. And of course, you also can submit your rolling footage and get direct coaching from our Black Belt Review team. Includes uh, high-level athletes like uh, Brianna St. Marie, Rachel Ranshaw, Margot Ciccarelli, Amanda Bruce. The team's always expanding. Anyway, the first week is free. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. BJJMentalModels.com. That's where everything lives. But Rob, thanks a lot, man. I always love these chats. Um, I really like this one too, especially because it's just so fucking relatable, right? I think that this, this whole idea of a, a genuine, confident mindset that is applicable for everyone, regardless of their athletic prowess, and that's going to stick with you and remain effective whether you win or lose. I think that's such a missing puzzle piece for a lot of people who do this sport. So a big thanks to you for coming by and sharing all of this. Who would have thought I of all people would be so relatable? <laughs> <laughs> the the guy who doesn't drink water is relatable. Who would have thought? <laughs> hey, just I, anyone out there, like one thing I'll tell you about Rob, no one will ever accuse Rob of being on steroids. This guy's not even on water as far <laughs> as I know. There's no way that he puts PEDs in his body. He won't even drink fucking water. I drink like the carbonated, like flavored water, like the, the bubblies now. Oh my God. But yeah, no, I won't drink just like regular water. Is there There's a no reason good. why? Is this like a trauma thing or? No, no, it's just, it's, it's flavorless. Like water is an ingredient in drink. I mean, I, I guess. <laughs> okay, whatever, man. It's the same reason I don't want soup. Like if I want the <laughs> oh. ingredients in a soup, I'll have a meal. Like don't fucking put water in it on top of that. It just dilutes the flavor. Hold on. You don't drink soup either? No, no. I, I, what do I, what somebody I know referred to it as, um, uh, poverty water. <laughs> I just, I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I guess time to wrap this one up. Uh, thanks a lot, Rob. As always, I truly do appreciate it. No worries. Take care, Steve. You too, man. Thanks to the listeners as well. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.